I'm still not on? Okay, cool. Hi. <laughs> so, um, I've already heard people shouting it from the seats, so let me just start with this. I get to say something right now that I've never been able to say from this stage before, and that is, if you look to my left over here in the front row, that is my wife. Jamie and I got married two weeks ago. It was an amazing day. Then um, spent a week in Aruba. And that was all right. (laughs) After being there, I can tell you all, I really think God created Aruba for vacations. Here's why. One, the temperature was in the low 80s, consistently varying only by one degree for the entire seven days. Like 82 and 83 is where it was. Not only that, but the water in Aruba is warm for the most part. So even though it was low 80s, the water was still warm. So you were, you weren't, you were hot, but not too hot when you're out of the water. And then when you're in the water, you weren't too cold. Also, in Aruba, there is a constant light breeze that is happening 24-7, no matter where you are on the island. So whether we were at the pool or the beach, and it's not a strong enough breeze that it blows your stuff away or blows sand up or anything, but it's just enough to kind of like, I feel like someone was just fanning me the entire time. (laughs) So I could make the whole message about Aruba, but I don't think anybody wants to hear that. So... We're in a series on identity here. Been talking about identity for six or seven weeks now. And here's the action I would love all of us to take after this morning. This. We need to stop asking ourselves the question, what's wrong with me? And start asking ourselves a question, what's wrong with the way I think? Let me say that again. My desire for all of us after this morning is that we would stop asking ourselves a question, what's wrong with me? And start asking ourselves a question, what is wrong with the way that I am thinking? And I think we can all agree there's something wrong on our planet. Even in Aruba, on our honeymoon, I happened to get on Facebook, and I saw that there was a shooting here in Cincinnati last week. And that's just a reminder that, hey, something's wrong here. Um, personal friends of mine who are going through tragedy, who are going through disease, family that are going through disease, it's easy to remember that something is wrong. And I think that all of you would agree with me that this isn't, those kinds of things weren't intended by God when he created our earth and he created us. He created earth as a paradise and we were his prized creation. He made this entire place for us. We were created to be in perfect relationship with him. We were sinless. We were full of joy and peace and love, and we were meant just to exist in that state forever with him. But something that God also created was choice. He created us with the ability to make choices. You see, you can't have love unless you have choice as well. 
God could have created us to be programmed, hardwired to always love him, always serve him, never abandon him no matter what, never choose ourselves no matter what. He could have created us that way, but without choice, you can't have love. You see, love is, there is a risk inherent in love. If you're really going to love somebody, it is always going to be a risk. And so God took a risk and he gave us the ability to choose him back or to choose ourselves or choose something else. And so we know that after a period of time, Adam and Eve, God's beloved creation, they decided to choose something else. He put, he gave them everything they could possibly want or need, but he also put a tree that said, hey, if you don't want to choose me anymore, you can choose this instead. And so at some point, they decided to choose something other than God. And when they ate that fruit from that tree, two things happened. They experienced guilt and they experienced shame. Guilt and shame. Here's the difference. Guilt is this. I did something wrong. I made a mistake. I failed. I did something I didn't want to do. It was wrong. I did something wrong. That's guilt. Shame is this. There's something wrong with me. Guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is there's something wrong with me. And we experience both of those things. Adam and Eve experienced both of those things at the fall. Guilt, because God told them, don't eat the fruit from this tree, and they did it. But not only did they do something wrong, but they also acquired a sin disease when they did that. They became sinners. They didn't just sin, they became sinners. And then something became wrong with them, and because something was wrong with them, something was wrong with the earth, and from that moment, every act of evil, every act of violence, every act of hatred can find its origin in that moment where something became wrong with God's creation. And so, because human beings were experiencing guilt and they were experiencing shame, they knew they did things wrong, there was also something wrong with them. They needed a savior. They needed a cure. They needed a remedy. And so that's where Christ came in. And here's a way to look at Christ's atonement, death, and resurrection. His atonement was primarily for our guilt. By atonement, I mean that Jesus took punishment upon himself that we deserved for wrongdoings that we had committed. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin are death. And so because we had sinned, because we had done something wrong, we deserve to experience death. But Jesus said, no, you aren't going to experience that. I'm going to take it instead. And with that, he took our, he took our guilt by justifying us. Another way to understand the word justification is just as if I never sinned. Okay? Justification is just as if I never sinned. So we don't have to experience guilt for our sins anymore because Jesus took that sin upon himself. But if he had stopped, if the gospel had stopped there, if the gospel message were to be completed with that, then we would have had our guilt taken care of, but what about our shame? Yeah, we're not guilty for our wrongdoings anymore, but there's still something wrong with us. And as long as there's something wrong with us, what do we have? 
And so not only did Jesus atone for our guilt, but he went to deal with that sin disease problem as well. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die alone. He died with all of our sinful natures too. Our sinful natures were there with Jesus on the cross. And maybe you didn't know this, but Jesus didn't just die for you. He also killed you. He killed the old you. And so on the cross, Jesus died along with all of our sinful natures. Our sinful natures were with Christ on the cross. They all died. And then when Jesus rose to life again, he rose our righteous nature to life with him. And so now, that's why Paul says in Romans 6, 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The sinful part of you died. The righteous part of you now lives if you're in Christ. And so the cure for, for guilt and shame can be found in Christ's atonement, in his death, and in his resurrection. But there's a problem. And that's what I want to spend the rest of my time talking about. Here's the problem. Although we are righteous if we're in Christ, although we're new creations, we still sin. And so the question is, if our sinful nature is dead, if it really did die with Jesus, then what is responsible for our sin still? Why do we still sin? Still sin? There's a couple of ways you can answer that question. One way that I grew up learning that I'm sure a bunch of other people in here have learned is that there, when the scriptures say that we died, it doesn't mean we were, we like totally died. We just kind of died. We're like semi-dead. And now there are two natures within us that are, that are at war, or a metaphor that's often used. There are two dogs within us that are fighting each other, okay? We've got our sinful nature dog, and we've got our new creation righteous dog. And whichever one you feed, that's the one that's going to overcome the other. So if as long as you are feeding your righteous dog, it's going to pummel your sinful nature dog, and you, it's never going to quite kill your sinful nature dog. It might get it down to skin and bones, maybe missing an eye, maybe missing a leg, but it's going to be there. It will be there until we are in heaven, um, but you can, you can hurt it. You can kind of push it down, but you can't get rid of it. And so that can sound true, and here's why that can sound true. For anybody in here, who has been struggling with, a, with sin before, which anyone not ever struggle with sin? Just cu- out of curiosity, okay? Chris Walden, give it, get up for Chris Walden. <laughs> you know what, why don't you just come up here and give the rest of the message? <laughs> Chris knows I love him, that's why I'm messing with him. But um, we've all had struggles with sin. And what it feels like is oftentimes is, man, I know there's a part of me that really does not want to keep doing this. Like, really, I don't want to do this anymore. But there's another part of me that feels like is going to war against that. And 
sometimes we struggle with these things for years. And so it really does feel like it feels like there are two natures that are at war with each other within us when we're struggling with sin. And so I understand where the two dog metaphor comes from. But I'm sure you'd all agree with me that what it means that we're in Christ is that our experiences no longer define what's true for us. We let this book, we let the word of God define what's true for us. So even though it might feel like there are two dogs that are fighting, if that's not what this book says, I'm not going to believe that. Not only that, but when we start to get into that mentality of I just have to feed my righteous nature so it overcomes my sinful nature, we're really putting ourselves back in religion. Why? Glad you asked. So, <laughs> so that, what that message is saying is this. As long as you keep doing enough good things, reading your Bible, carving out two hours a day for the Lord, not doing this, doing that. As long as you keep feeding, you keep doing, doing, doing good things, not doing bad things, then you will feed the good part of you to overcome the bad part of you. But there's a catch. You'll never totally get rid of the bad part of you, so you'll never actually be good. You're always still going to be bad, but keep trying to do good things so that you can stay bad. (laughs) And so... The two dogs is not the message of freedom that's in the gospel. It's not the message of grace. It's not the message of victory. It's a message of bondage. But there's still a problem. Why do we sin then? If it's not the two dogs, if there's not two natures at war within us, if our sinful nature really is dead, if we really are righteous, oh, by the way, the term righteous I know it can have a lot of religious connotations. It simply means as one ought to be. Jesus came, removed the sin disease so we could be as we ought to be. We could be as he originally intended us to be. So if we really are righteous and our sinful nature really is dead, what do we do with sin struggles that we may still have? Why do those, how are those able to still happen? And so what I want to do to answer that question is show you all a flow chart that kind of talks, attempts to answer this very question. It's not original to me. If you've ever been a part of the School of Kingdom Ministry or if you're familiar with it, you'll recognize the name Putty Putman. And originally, I learned this from Putty. I've kind of taken it and made it my own in a number of ways. But the original idea was from Putty. And so let's just get that first slide up there and start talking through this. So what we are trying to talk about is why is it that a new creation believer can still have both righteous actions and sinful actions? Because I'm sure everybody in here would say, this is your reality, that you have a certain amount of things that you do in your week, in your month, in your year, that you know are the right thing to do, and then there's a certain percentage of things that you do that are the wrong thing to do. Maybe some of our percentages vary a little bit, but the point is we all do right and we all do wrong. Why is that? Well, let's go one layer out. So the second slide would say, well, it's because of our desires. So 
When we have a righteous desire, we do righteous things. When we have a sinful desire, we do sinful things. If I walk out into public and I see somebody who just looks broken, either physically or emotionally, and I get this desire within me to go and show them the love of Jesus, and I go and do it, and they get touched by God, that is me experiencing a righteous desire and then doing a righteous action because of it. Also, if I get hurt by somebody, if someone offends me, if someone angers me, if someone makes me sad, and I decide, well, I'm going to go and tell three people how much I hate them and, <laughs> and gossip about them, that is me having a sinful desire. I want vengeance. I want to them to feel the pain they've caused me to feel. And so then I do a sinful action. But just stopping here doesn't really answer the question I'm asking because we could just say, well, where do sinful desires come from? If our sinful nature is dead, where do these sinful desires actually come from? And so what um, I learned growing up and what I've heard in a lot of places is the two dogs metaphor. So with the next slide, basically what that metaphor is saying is that we have a nature that's sinful and we have a nature that's righteous. They are constantly at war. When our sinful nature wins out, then we experience sinful desires, which may lead to sinful actions. When our righteous nature wins out, we experience righteous desires, which may lead to righteous actions. One variable that I haven't put in here yet is the will. And so what um, a lot of people will say is that, you know, this is the reality right here, except you have your will. And so when you experience a sinful desire, you just have to muster up enough willpower to not give into it. And learning to do that is learning to live the life of freedom and victory in Christ. And I don't know about any of you, but if any of you have ever been there before where always on your mind every day was, can I have enough willpower to overcome the sinful desire? It doesn't feel like freedom. It doesn't feel like victory at all. And so this is what a lot of people will say. Um, but I don't think this is what we read in here. I think the main reason this is what people will say is because this is just what it feels like. This is what it seems to be from our experience. But let's uh, go to the next slide. As we know from the word, from scripture, one more, yep. We know that it is not that it, there's, a, there's no battle going on between us, between sinful and righteous. Christ won the battle already. The sinful nature has been totally defeated and destroyed and is dead. And if you don't believe me, let's go to Romans 6. Romans 6, starting in verse 5, Paul writes this. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Everybody say done away with. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And then verse 7, it's not up there, but it says, for he who has died is freed from sin. Okay? So, <clears throat> our sinful nature was crucified with Christ on the cross, what that passage just said. Now, growing up, when I would read, I've been crucified with Christ in the word, or when I would read um, 
for uh, my sinful nature has been crucified with him. I would usually think like, oh, crucified as in like really beat down and, and now I crucify myself every day or something like that. Um, but that doesn't make any sense because crucifixion was a method of execution. It results in death. So when the biblical authors write your old self was crucified, you can read that as your old self was killed. And in fact, if we say that, well, yes, our old self was crucified and killed, but not totally dead, just almost dead, and now we get to do the rest of the killing until we go to heaven, it is the same as saying, well, when Jesus was on the cross and nails went through his arms and through his feet, that he didn't actually die up there. He just got close to death. It's the same thing. We can't say that if Paul writes, as Christ was crucified, so were you crucified. We can't say that, well, Jesus actually died, but we didn't. We either have to say, Jesus died, and we died, or Jesus didn't totally die because we didn't totally die either. So, point is that crucified leaves us no doubt. The biblical understanding of the gospel is that our old self, our sinful nature, died. Okay. So back to the problem then. Why is it that we still experience sin? And so going on to the, uh, yeah, if, yeah, okay, let me read that question. If we don't have a sinful nature, how can we have sinful desires? That's the question we're back to. So let's go to the next slide. So this is where we are now. We have our righteous nature. We understand that our righteous nature is what results in our righteous desires, which results in our righteous actions. But the question is, why is it that we can still have sinful desires and result that have, and, and have sinful actions without a sinful nature? Now, there is one variable that we haven't talked about yet. We've talked about actions, we've talked about desires, we've talked about nature, I've said a little bit about willpower, but the one that we haven't talked about yet, and what I believe is the answer in understanding how believers can still sin, is the mind. The mind. The way that we think. You know, you probably all know this verse. Paul said in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by fighting hard against your sinful nature. <laughs> oh no, sorry. He said, but be transformed by exercising as much willpower as you can against your sinful desires. No. He said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That transformation doesn't happen through fighting against your nature or fighting against your desires or exercising willpower. It comes by the renewal of the mind. That's why in the Greek language, the word repent is translated as change the way you think. Change the way you think is what that word really means. All that word means, change your mind. Change the way you think. 
And so the message of the gospel then is, hey, kingdom of God is here, a new reality, a new way to find life, a new way to find purpose, a new way to um, be is here. So change the ways you're thinking so that you can lay hold of that freedom and that, vic- that victory. Change the way you think. Paul talks about this in more detail in 2 Corinthians 10, about this idea of the battle in the mind. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, say this. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Stop there. We do not war according to the flesh. It's not about our flesh fighting up against our righteous nature. That's not where the battle is. But in verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Other translations say strongholds. Verse 5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So, putting all that he said in those three verses in one line, it's this, that the enemy causes thoughts to rise up in our minds that are contrary to knowing God. And when I say knowing God, I don't simply mean knowing things about God. You know, I know things about former President Obama, but I don't know him. I know things about lots of people, but I don't know them. In fact, if you look at the Greek text, one of the words for knowledge could be translated to become intimately acquainted with. So knowing Jesus is becoming intimately acquainted with Jesus. That shouldn't surprise any of us because if we read back in the Hebrew text in Genesis, when they're talking about procreation, it says Adam knew Eve. So-and-so knew so-and-so. We all know what that means. It doesn't just mean, hey, I know who you are. So knowledge is becoming intimately acquainted with somebody. And so what the enemy does is the enemy causes thoughts to rise up in our mind that are contrary to knowing God, that are contrary to growing in our relationship with God. And when we agree with those thoughts or when we say, well, I guess those thoughts are the truth. Oh, I experienced this, so I guess this thought that I'm having is true. I've been rejected the last three places I went, so this thought I'm having, these people are going to reject me. I guess that's true. When we agree with that, that's when those strongholds, that's when those fortresses, um, figurative fortresses, get built up in our minds. But we don't have anything to fear because what does Paul say? The weapons of our warfare are powerful to destroy fortresses and destroy strongholds. So the battle then, go on to the last slide. The battle is not in the mind, but it's in the, matri- in the nature. That's why I told you all at the beginning of this, my hope is that we stop asking ourselves a question what's wrong with me? And start asking what is wrong with the way that I am thinking. Because it is sinful mindsets, sinful thoughts, sinful beliefs that we continually choose to hold that lead to sinful desires and sinful actions. It's not a sinful nature. It's a sinful way of thinking. And here's the thing about being believers. We're the only ones that I know of that are able to choose what we believe, choose how we think. Most people, 
the way they think or what they believe simply is a result of their experiences and a result of their environment. So I just believe this because this is what my experience, I believe that people reject me because I've been rejected everywhere else. We just believe according to our experiences. But believers, what we get to do, it's funny that our term is believers, you know? What we get to do is say, you know what, I've experienced this all my life, or hey, this has been my environment all my life, but I'm gonna choose not to believe that. I'm gonna choose to believe what's in this book instead. I mean, one struggle I've had my whole life is wanting to be in control. If I am not in control, I am not happy. I used the example of cutting bell peppers for pasta primavera with Jamie before. If I cannot in control of how I cut those things, then I don't like it. You know, when we are uh, driving somewhere, if I'm not in control of what route we're taking, then I don't like it. If she suggests another route, I'm like, no, I think I'm going to stay with my route. I want to be in control, right? I've struggled with that my whole life. And what that comes down to is, you know what? Fundamentally, I think it's my job to provide for myself. I think it's my job to take care of myself. I don't believe that God's going to take care of me. And so I stay stuck in this pattern of hurting people around me and doing things out of fear, out of fear of failure, out of fear of regret, out of fear of not accomplishing things because I fundamentally don't really believe God's going to do it for me. And so as long as I keep choosing to believe that, as long as I keep choosing to believe I've got to do something because God's not going to do it for me, I'm going to stay in that place where sinful desires and sinful actions are going to manifest out of that belief. It's not until I say, no, I know it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't even totally make sense to me. But this book says God is a provider. And I'm going to choose to believe that no matter what I've experienced, no matter what I'm seeing right now, and put all my trust in him and take the trust out of myself. Because I know that's the only way that I'm going to be able to live. We get to choose what we believe as Christians. You know what? It's a lot easier to just go with, oh, there's just something wrong with me. That's why I did that. Oh, you know, I just went off at someone at work, but it's just because there's something wrong with me. I just have a big old pit bull on this side that is really beating up my golden retriever righteous dog. I don't know. <laughs> and it's just, it's just so hard for me. I just can't change it. I'm just always going to have this in me. You know, we start to adopt a victim mentality of, I can't do anything about this. I'm stuck. When it's actually harder to say, you know what? I just went off on someone at work. I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to examine what are things that I was believing in that situation that are not helpful or not true? And how can I believe differently so that I do differently next time? That's what it comes down to. It's, it's harder. It is a lot harder to change the way you think than to say, oh, it's just, it's just my nature. So here are three practical takeaways for how we can allow our minds to continually be more renewed. One is 
get prayer. <laughs> Believe it or not, pray. And not only pray yourself, but come to the front and let someone pray for you. Here's why. In my walk as a believer, when I have incorrect mindsets or I have sinful beliefs or I have harmful beliefs, I've seen God deal with them in two ways. The first way is that he supernaturally just eradicates them from my mind. And I've seen that happen to multiple people. We believe in a God of power. We believe in a God of miracles. And one of the greatest miracles that he can do in our lives is take away years of baggage that we've built up in our minds from experiences and environment. And so I encourage you, if you haven't tried that, just let someone lay hands on you and pray for you. Second way I've seen God renew my mind and others' minds around me is through a process. Not as fun. (laughs) Not as fun, but so necessary. And the first step of that process is us saying, I'm going to choose to engage in it. I'm going to stop ignoring this thing. I'm going to stop saying, well, this thing is just part of me. I'm never going to be able to fix it. It's just part of my personality. It's just who I am. I'm going to stop with that, and I'm going to start to engage a process of allowing God to renew my mind so that I cannot repeat that sinful action in the future. Uh, best way that I have experienced, best thing I've done, or the thing that's worked best for me with that is frequently reflecting on my thoughts, emotions, and actions. Frequently reflect. So the first one's get prayer. The second one, frequently reflect on your thoughts, emotions, and actions. Huh, I walked into that room and my first thought was, wow, so-and-so over here is really trying to get attention. I wonder why that was my first thought. And so I, I take that time to reflect and be like, okay, that thought is not going to lead me into anything like showing Jesus' love to people or to this person. So I'm not going to deny, I'm not going to say that maybe what was happening wasn't happening, but why was that thought the first thing that came to my mind? Frequently affect on thoughts, frequently reflect on your emotions and your actions too. If you're having a conversation with somebody, and they start talking about something that is seemingly harmless, but you're starting to feel anger, you're starting to feel insecurity, you're starting to feel sadness. Like someone's talking about how they uh, went to a Reds game last week and you're getting mad. You know, be like, okay, why am I getting mad about this? And it might be, well, I wish they would have invited me to that game, you know? And so you start to realize, and I, I deserve to have been invited to that game. And so you start to find, okay, why am I, why, why am I having these emotions? Um, and it's, of course, your actions. If you uh, say something harsh to your spouse, if you, um, you know, let, off, let out a few choice words driving down 75 in construction that you regret, <laughs> whatever it might be, constantly reflect and be like, why is it that I did that? And then the third thing I'll say is have a go-to person. Have somebody you can go to and be like, hey, I'm experiencing this desire. I don't want it. What do you think I might be believing wrong about this? You see, it's a lot easier just to do it with you and God because then no one has to see your stuff because it's scary when people see my stuff because they might look down on me. They might reject me. They might think less of me. 
they might push me away. And you know what? All four of those things I said, reject me, push me away, look down on me, those are thoughts raised up against the knowledge of God. And so when we don't have people that we go to and say, hey, this is embarrassing, I feel vulnerable, I feel weak, but here's my stuff. When we don't have people like that, we're actually continuing to believe negative mindsets. We're continuing to hold negative mindsets that keep us from going to people. So we can't do that. Have a go-to person that you can be like, hey, I did this. I know it was stupid. You can tell me it was stupid just so I can hear it said too. Sometimes I like that. When someone looks at me, I was like, Luke, that was dumb. <laughs> because I'm just like, yes, that was dumb. And something about just the complete honesty is so freeing. You know, being in a Christian community doesn't mean that you sugarcoat when someone does something wrong or when someone believes something wrong. It doesn't mean you say, hey, you know, I know that you uh, punched that person at work, but I just, I see a great heart in you, and I know that you didn't really do that. Um, I know that uh, you just, you didn't actually want to punch them. You wanted to, uh, you know, hug them with your knuckles. <laughs> you know, <laughs> We don't gotta be like that. We can be like, hey, that was stupid. Don't do it again. I know that you're better than that. And of course, you don't want, you uh, only earn the right to be um, this honest with someone when you've spent this much time in a relationship with them. So I'm not saying start looking at everyone around you, trying to find their stuff, and then going in with like a sniper. Um, it has to be done in a relationship, but it's okay to do that. And so, like I said at the beginning of this message, my hope is that we stop asking ourselves, what's wrong with me? And then we start asking ourselves, what's wrong with the way we think? Because it is in the mind, that's where the battle is. And as we continue to choose to stop believing sinful, harmful, false things, and we start believing healthy, righteous things, so we start to do that, we will see our desires, our thoughts, our actions start to look more like Jesus. So, let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross, sending your son to take away our guilt, take away our shame, to uh, forgive us for everything wrong that we've ever done, but not even just to stop there, but to make us new, make us righteous. And I just ask that any harmful belief that I have, any wrong belief or sinful belief that anybody has in this room, that she would just allow that to bubble to the surface and allow it just to give it to you and to uh, choose to no longer believe it. We love you, Lord, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay. So, thank you.
So we're going to be going into worship in a second. We're also going to be doing communion today. So I'd love to invite the communion servers to head back to your station to prepare. As that's happening, we're also going to receive our offering. So if you have a check, you can make it out to Vineyard Northwest. If you need an offering envelope, they're in the seat backs in front of you. If you're in the very front row, you have to run to the back and get the one off of the back row. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, you can also give through our app. We have an app, um, Vineyard Northwest. Just type Vineyard Northwest into the search bar on the app store. You'll find us. And you can give there. Um, and so, yeah, ushers, you can go ahead and start receiving right now if you want. You know, our, an assignment we feel like this church has is to see our city completely transformed and to see the kingdom extend into every business, every neighborhood of our city. I really would love for Cincinnati to be known across the country and the world as a city of revival, as a city where Jesus is king. And so everything that you give, I promise you, is going towards that call and that mission, that we are um, using all of our resources, all of our time, all of our energy, all of our money to go after seeing Cincinnati look more like heaven than hell. And I want to thank you all for partnering with us in, uh, in that way. So now that we've received the offering, communion, people, you can go to your places. The... Uh, way we do communion here at the vineyard is we have two people standing. One has a bowl of crackers. The other has a cup with grape juice in it. During worship, you can line up and um, receive communion by taking one cracker and dipping it in the grape juice and then eating it. That represents us receiving what Jesus did for us, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us to be forgiven, to be made righteous to uh, be made whole. And so, yeah, I'm going to pray one last time and then we'll go into worship. Father, we just give you this time of worship. We uh, say it's all about you. It's not about us. It's all about you, Jesus. So we invite your presence in your name. Amen. All right, feel free to stand. You can uh, choose any communion duo to walk up to whenever you want to. And then once communion is done being served, feel free to come to the front or the back for worship. <laughs>